Hello, this is Chris. Welcome and thank you for watching this, the first in a series of four classes on Jesus and the law in Matthew, set aside or set in stone. So why do I want us to look at that? First of all, um, I'm a big fan, as many of you will know, of uh, theologian N.T. Wright um, and those of his uh, what's called the new perspective um, believe it's very important that we understand the story of Jesus in the context of the Old Testament and the story of Israel. Only then can we really make sense of it and certainly only then can we make sense of what Paul has to say about Jesus. And last year I came across Peter Lightheart's two-volume commentary on Matthew, Jesus as Israel, which was um, a brilliant read. And I saw that Matthew is telling the story of Jesus in this way as part of the story of Israel. And this includes the role of the law within the new covenant established in Jesus. And this was very pertinent to me at the time because I had been involved in discussions which ultimately proved fruitless with someone within our fellowship of churches who had come to believe that we as Gentile Christians are still obliged to follow the Torah, the, the laws of Moses, the Jewish laws. And uh, this is something that has been um, taught by uh, various ministries under the uh, label the umbrella term the Hebrew roots movement and uh, actually at exactly the time that we were having these discussions Doug Jacoby on his site douglasjacoby.com um, published a series of podcasts on messianic Judaism which uh, talk about this uh, movement and the momentum behind it particularly in the states but the fact that I was involved in discussions regarding this movement uh, demonstrate it's over here as well. So I think it's important that we have um, a strong grasp of understanding the role of the law within uh, our own Christian lives, not only so we can have confidence in our own position, but so we can help other people, hopefully. So Matthew is regarded as the most Jewish of the Gospels and Matthew's big picture that I saw revealed in Peter Lightheart's commentary depicts Jesus as in some way embodying Israel and in some way reliving the story of Israel. We'll come to that next week. The conclusion is that what Matthew is telling us is that the story of Israel pointed all along towards a future fulfillment in Jesus. So the Old Testament law must be in understood in terms of its fulfillment in Jesus. So the four classes, today we're going to be looking at the story of Israel, the background, then next time Jesus as Israel, and in third class I'll be doing an exegesis of one of the main Hebrew roots arguments from uh, Matthew 5 17 to 20, and then in the fourth class will be looking at a conclusion entitled Renewed Heart, Renewed Covenant. So then the story of Israel. So after the fall with Adam and Eve, the cosmos finds itself under a curse. But in Genesis 12, 3, 
God says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's important here to understand that biblically, blessings and curses are opposites. So if the cosmos is under a curse, but the, all the families of the, world, of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, that means that what God is achieving through Abraham and his descendants is the undoing of the, the curse, the restoration to an Edenic state. So the family of Abraham find themselves in slavery in Egypt and through Moses, God leads them out of captivity towards the promised land, making them into the nation of Israel. But he makes a covenant of law with them. And in giving this covenant, Moses calls on the people to make a choice, a choice between life or death blessing or curse. And the way these choices would be enacted would be through obedience or disobedience to the ordinances of the law in the covenant that they had been given. And Moses, as he gives this choice, um, warns that the ultimate punishment for disobedience would be exile. And as his comments suggest, that is what happens. First of all, the the northern kingdom, Israel, is exiled and lost. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, subsequently goes into exile in Babylon. And although the people return physically to Jerusalem in a spiritual sense, in terms sense of the separation between God and Israel, the exile continues. Israel is still not forgiven. Just to, gener uh, to demonstrate this point, because it is uh, controversial. Ezra, uh, on the return to Jerusalem, addresses the people, both in uh, Ezra 9 and here recorded by Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9. And in verses 33 to 37, Ezra says to God, you have been just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our officials, our priests and our ancestors have not kept your law or heeded the commandments and the warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and in the great goodness you bestowed on them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you and did not turn from their wicked works. Here we are, slaves to this day, slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. So you see here, even though they have returned to Jerusalem, they've been commissioned to come and rebuild the temple. Ezra's outlook perspective is that they are still slaves. They may be in a different place, but they're still slaves, still under Babylonian rule. And this is the uh, similar words under the, uh, as recorded in Ezra, Ezra uh, 9, 7 to 9, where again we see him referring to them as continuing in slavery. So in Matthew, right at the beginning in Matthew 1, we see this big picture that I referred to earlier revealed. First of all, we have the genealogy identifying how Jesus fits into the Old Testament story. And then we have, as the nativity story unfolds, the angel of God revealing what's going to happen to Joseph. And he says, 
she will bear a son, it's Mary obviously, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So having revealed who Jesus' people are through the genealogy, we're seeing this big picture that these people are stuck in sin and they need saving. And Matthew's gospel will reveal how Jesus will go about being the saviour that the people need. So who are his people? So in, uh, in the genealogy, there's a, a summary at the end. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, i.e. the exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So we see here that the genealogy starts not with Adam, like in Luke, but with Abraham, ends with the Messiah. So Jesus is part of the Abraham story. And notice also that it highlights David and the exile as key themes. So why then did Israel need saving? So the law was given to define Israel's separation as the covenant people, to separate her from the pagan nations around her, but also as a, a guide. But as soon as it was given, the law identified a serious flaw in Israel. Moses descends Sinai with the tablets of the law and he finds the golden calf. He hasn't even had time to, to tell the people about it. And there's the golden calf demonstrating that these are a sinful people. So Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were called to be a blessing to the world, but demonstrated right here that they needed saving themselves. So there's a big problem with God's plan of redemption, so it would seem. So exile was a punishment. So for the exile to end would mean that Israel was forgiven. I should say here, I'm going to use the term Israel. Clearly at the time of Jesus, it was Judea. We've had the split kingdoms of Israel and Judah, but I'm using Israel in a sort of spiritual sense as the covenant people. So when Daniel in exile realizes the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah for the exile to, to last, is approaching its end, he goes down in prayer, pleading with God to let them return home. And he says in Daniel 9, 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. He understands that the exile can't end until Israel has been forgiven. But Gabriel appears to him and explains that actually it's not going to be 70 years, it's going to be seven times 70 years. This is in verse 24. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. In other words, it will be 490 years before the exile will end because it will be 490 years before the sin of Israel that led to exile has been dealt with, has been atoned for. So how will this forgiveness come about? How will Israel find the forgiveness that will finally release it? from exile. Well, the Old Testament scriptures point to two themes involved in forgiveness. First of all, there's a the theme of redemptive suffering, and second, secondly, obedience and renewal of heart. So first of all, redemptive suffering. So there was a sense from a Jewish perspective that 
the suffering they were enduring in exile would in itself be redemptive, would in somehow atone for their sin. We see this in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, the first two verses. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid. So this seems to be saying that suffering will in somehow pay off the debt, the pay the penalty. Even today, we talk about prisoners paying their debt to society. And this is Israel paying its debt to God. And in Lamentations 4.22, it says, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. So exile was a, a means of extracting a payment. And that is now being accomplished in this prophecy. And so the exile can end. So we're all very familiar with the suffering servant and clearly and rightly we identify the suffering servant as Jesus but that only makes sense retrospectively when we look back in the light of Jesus and examine how he reinterprets the under the orthodox understanding of the Old Testament which the Jews had. The Jews had no expectation. There's really no reason why they should have done um, clearly, certainly in the Old Testament prophecies, no expectation that the Messiah, that this messianic figure would also be the suffering servant rather the messianic um, figure like in Psalm 2 would be a Davidic style king who would lead uh, Israel to vanquish its enemies and restore its glory. So, when uh, Israel looked, or certainly when many Jews looked at the suffering servant in Isaiah, they understood that to be the nation of Israel itself. And you see justification for that here in Isaiah 41 verses 8 to 9, where God clearly identifies Israel as the servant. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. So when in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. Yet you make his life an offering for sin. He shall see his suffering and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. So for many Jews, their understanding of him here was the nation of Israel. And they understood that their exile and their continuing exile, they may not have put it like that, but their suffering under pagan rule was the fulfillment of that. But they saw in that some sort of future redemption being paid for. Ezekiel, likewise, the, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, which is all about the exile so Israel in exile is portrayed as dead just a pile of bones but then its restoration is portrayed as a resurrection the bones coming back together um, with flesh so if exile is a kind of death then restoration is a kind of resurrection so the exile seems in this imagery to function like a sacrifice a death that leads to life so Israel looked forward to a time when her debt would be paid, when God would forgive her, and they called this the age to come. And the ongoing exile, the suffering under pagan rule, as at the time of Jesus under Roman rule, was called the present evil age. So 
how this would actually be enacted differed from group to group. Some focused more on the Messiah returning as king, some as uh, Jehovah himself returning as king. But ultimately, Israel would be vindicated before the nations, their enemies would be defeated, and the covenant would be renewed. So the second thing then, obedience and renewal of heart. So in Isaiah 29, uh, God says, the Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouths and honour me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. Here we see God through Isaiah identifying the problem of Israel as lying in the heart. Israel's heart was far from God. And Jesus actually quotes this passage in Matthew 15, demonstrating that this problem is still not resolved. Israel's heart is still far from God. However, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it is clear that a renewed heart and a renewed heart, sorry, a renewed covenant and renewed heart go together. The problem that Israel is in will only be resolved when Israel has a new heart. So Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And then Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So Moses, when he lays out the choices I referred to earlier, choose life or death, blessing or curse, he seems to predict exile, that that will indeed happen, that the ultimate punishment will occur. But he offers hope of a future restoration. But there is a condition. So Deuteronomy 30, uh, first four verses, when all these things have happened to you, i.e. the exile, if you return to the Lord your God and you and your children, obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes, gathering you again. Even if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you. So what we see here is, yes, there is a, an opportunity to be regathered, to be restored to God as God's people, but it's going to be conditional on Israel demonstrating an obedience with all its heart and all its soul to God. So it's conditional. So two conditions for the end of exile, redemptive suffering, the, the debt must be paid. And then secondly, obedience and renewal of heart. Israel must obey God with all its heart and with all its soul, and only then will God regather it. So Israel's disobedience has created a sin debt and redemption, it seems, is, will come through suffering. In fact, in the, the language, the Jews spoke at the time of Jesus, Aramaic, there is only one word, koba, which means both sin and debt. You can see the way the two are linked. So if Israel could obey God with all its heart and soul, the covenant would be renewed in response. In other words, a sin debt would be paid and Israel would be forgiven and released from exile. So we have this picture of Israel stuck in exile, needing forgiveness needing to be rescued and Matthew revealing that Jesus will be the means of that rescue so we would expect Matthew then to go on and reveal 
how Jesus, through his life, death and resurrection, finally brings about the exile of Israel, how he brings about the forgiveness that enables the exile to end. And we would expect this to involve payment of the sin debt and demonstrate total obedience of heart and soul, unlocking the end of exile. So next time in class two, Jesus as Israel, we will see how Matthew depicts Jesus in some way as an embodiment of Israel, in some way reliving the story of Israel and demonstrating how the story of Israel pointed to a greater fulfillment in Jesus. Until then, thank you very much.